Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. the Truth Conference will be meeting at Hamilton Chapel up in Gladeville. I'll be lecturing for two mornings over there, and for the last 10 years that I've been doing that, they have always assigned me a topic. And the topic that they have assigned for me this year, rather appropriately, is the importance of the local church. 
And especially in these days of COVID and watching church online rather than actually congregating, having a discussion about the importance of local church seems especially (coughs) appropriate. You can look around the room and you can see how the last couple of years have affected GCA. It used to be that we were kind of busting out the walls and then COVID happened and for completely legitimate reasons that are completely understandable, there were some people who didn't want to leave the house. They didn't want to come congregate. They didn't want to come to public places. And of course, we've had a few of our beloved members pass away And we've had people move away. And we look around the room right now and we can see that we've been sort of hit hard by the events going on in the world right now. But I was talking to Jeff the other day. Jeff said to me, you know, even though we've gone through what we've gone through, I really like GCA right now. I like the family atmosphere of GCA. I like the fact that everybody likes everybody right now and that we don't have any troublemakers. We don't have any thorns in our side. And that is true. Right now, GCA is very, very healthy. That was a very funny moment from where I stand because I said, we have no thorns in our side. And several people in the room turned and looked at someone else. (laughs) so if you don't know who the thorn is you're you're probably it but (laughs) but it's true i'm i expect that we are based on 20 years of our existence and watching the ebb and flow of gca just like every church in the world We go through periods of growth and we go through periods of contraction. And this most recent period of contraction was due to a worldwide pandemic. But I believe that we're in a beginning of establishing GCA again. We have a very good foundation right now. And I look forward to what God is going to do in the coming years. And I look forward to the days when we're uh, thinking about knocking out the walls again. But even if that doesn't happen, I'm very grateful for all of you. I'm really happy that you're all here, and I'm really happy that you all like each other the way that you do and are being kind and generous and gracious to each other, but really you're being Christian to each other. And that is just an indication that the constant diet of the Word of God is doing its work. And that makes me happy. That makes the effort worthwhile. So I just thought I'd share that with you. Turn to Revelation chapter 5. I have written up on the board in English letters, A-X-I-O-S. Axios is the Greek word. The word axios is translated worthy. At the end of last week, as we were talking about the worship in heaven, by the way, even the word worship, our English word worship, is a contraction of two old English words, worth-ship. 
And so when you say worship, you are admitting that someone is worthy of having that worship. That Greek word axios means to be deserving, not just demanding or expecting praise, but being of such character, being of such nature that you actually just draw praise out of people, the same way that Ezekiel or Isaiah or even John, when they came in contact with the divine, they didn't have to be told, get down on your face. They just got down on their face because the one that they were bowing down to reverently was in fact worthy. And so they just deserved that kind of reaction And it was just an automatic reaction because God in his holiness, in his splendor, in his singularity, in his aseity, he just inspires and draws out that kind of praise from us. The more that you know about God, the more that you understand the God of the Bible, the easier it is to worship him, to praise him. Last week, we concentrated on the fact that this worthiness, this statement of worth that the angels in heaven and the 24 elders and the four living beasts, this statement of worthiness is always pointed toward God, the one on the throne, the high mighty one. In fact, at the end of chapter 4, starting at verse 9, we read, when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, The 24 elders then fall down before him who sits on the throne, and they will worship him who lives forever and ever, and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy art thou, O Lord, our God, worthy to receive glory and honor and power, because you did create all things, and because of your will, They existed and were created. And so in heaven, in the declarations of holy majesty, the angelic gathering, the angelic throng that we're going to read about this morning, states over and over that God is worthy, that God is the one who deserves that level of praise. Now, why am I emphasizing that this morning? Because in chapter 5... That same angelic group is going to start talking about the worthiness of the Lamb. They're going to use the exact same language. And they're going to declare that he deserves the same level of praise and worship and honor and glory that God on the throne deserves. This is yet again another example where we get our theology, our Christology, our understanding of who Christ is. It's part of the foundation of why we believe in Trinitarian doctrine, because we see in the Bible that God is praised and worshipped, but then we see that Christ is praised and worshipped. We see that the Holy Spirit is praised and worshipped, and so we see this equality between the three of them, And consequently, we believe in a God who is three in one. And so you're going to see that this morning. You're going to see that the worthiness of God 
right in front of God, right at the very throne of God, that same declaration of worthiness is transferred to the Lamb. And God doesn't object. God doesn't stand up and say, whoa, hold on, hold on, I'm God, not him. And so God allows that his son, and in fact creates the situation where his son is glorified and honored and declared to be worthy. Worthy art thou, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you did create all things, and because of thy will they existed and they were created. That is the reason that God deserves that kind of praise. Part of his worthiness is wrapped up in the fact that he created everything that he decided to make everything and everything exists because of him. Therefore, he is more than just the first cause of all things. He is the maker and sustainer of all things. And everything that exists, exists because he determined that it was going to exist. So without him, nothing exists. He is preexistent, all existent, eternally existent. And everything else that exists depends on his existence. It is on that basis that the angelic horde says, you are worthy, you are worthy, you are worthy. Keep that in mind, because Jesus is going to be declared worthy for a completely different reason, and yet held as equal to God in worth. And that's the end of my introduction. What? Oh, pfft, you know, <laughs> come on. It's good to have Luann and her sarcasm back. She actually went, what? Like, like, too soon. Chapter 5, verse 1. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, that's God, obviously, The NASB translates the next word as book. It's actually scroll, because books in those days were scrolls. So he had a scroll in his hand. That scroll was written on the inside and on the back, meaning the front of the scroll, the back of the scroll, had writing all over it. And then the scroll was rolled up. The way that you would keep a scroll scrolled up was to set a seal on it, use a little bit of wax and seal it. But this particular scroll is sealed up with seven seals, again, this repetition of seven that we see throughout the book of Revelation. So what's in this scroll? God is holding this scroll that is sealed seven times, which means it's really sealed. You can't just walk up and open it. And the one who has all holiness, all righteousness, all dominion, all power, has it in his hand. Now, it would be very presumptuous of any of the elders or any of the living creatures or anyone else to walk up and take it from him to find out what's in it. Verse 2 says, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is axios, 
who is worthy? Who's worthy to open the book and to break its seals? So this is now a question in heaven. Who has the intrinsic value, the worth? Who has the dominion and the power comparable to God that they would be allowed to approach God, number one, but then take something out of his hand? And the fact that all heaven is asking the question means there's no one in heaven that's worthy. There's no one who's worthy to approach him, take that scroll, break those seals, and then open it to find out what's in it. Now, this is not unique to John, by the way. This is not something that John is seeing that has never happened before in the Bible. In fact, if you go back to the book of Ezekiel, the second chapter of Ezekiel, when Ezekiel was commissioned by God to go out and preach to Israel, he was actually given a very similar scroll. And this helps us to understand what the scroll contains. I'm in chapter 2 of Ezekiel, and I'm going to start reading at verse 9. No, verse 8. Genesis 1.1. Verse 8 of Ezekiel 2. Now you, son of man, listen to what I am speaking to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. He's talking about Israel and Judah. They are rebellious. Don't be like them. Open your mouth and eat what I am giving you. And then I looked, behold, a hand was extended to me, and lo, a scroll was in it. And he spread it out before me, and it was written on the front and on the back. Sound familiar? And on it were written lamentations and mourning and woe. Not good stuff. Okay, so now we have some idea what the scroll that is in the hand of God, historically, with Ezekiel, we know what it represents. It represents difficulty for the men of planet Earth. It's judgment. It's woe. It's hardship. It's the pouring out of the wrath of God, the judgment of God. Well, same thing here in heaven. So now that helps us understand why the heavenly denizens would ask the question, who's worthy to open that? Because if it is full of the judgment of God, then there's no angel, there's no created being, there's no elder, there's no living creature who has the intrinsic value to not only approach God and take this from his hand, but then start removing seals and opening it and declaring the judgments of God. Only God can do that. And yet here is God sitting with these judgments in his hand. And I saw a strong angel. I'm back in Revelation 5. I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth, or very interestingly, or under the earth, that means neither Satan nor any demon nor anybody under God's judgment, nobody in heaven 
No humans on planet Earth. No demons under the planet. No one is able to open this book or to look on it. Because you've got to open it to look at it. You've got to open it to read it. And nobody has the intrinsic worth. Nobody is worthy to remove the seals and open the book that is full of the woe and the judgment of God. That gives you some idea of what I was talking about last week when we were speaking about the holiness of God, when we were talking about the fact that holiness is God's primary characteristic. Because this judgment that is in this scroll, that is in the hand of God, represents his holy judgment, his holy righteous judgment, and therefore no created creature can participate in it because none of them have that holiness of God, that singularity of God, the worth of God. No one in heaven, no one on earth, no one under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And then, John says, I began to weep greatly because no one was found Worthy, axios, to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. I've said to you since we began the book of Revelation that Revelation is a very, very Jewish book and that the better you understand the Old Testament, the better you're going to understand the book of Revelation. Those two phrases, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David, are very, very Jewish phrases. And they come again right from the scripture. The book of Revelation keeps making direct references and allusions to Old Testament books. For instance, Tom, if you would, look up Genesis 49.9, and the rest of us are going to go to Isaiah chapter 11. The reason that I've got Tom turning to Genesis 49 is because that's the place where Jacob, in his old age, leans on his staff and is pronouncing to his 12 sons what's going to become of them in the future. And right in the midst of declaring blessings and cursings to his 12 sons and their progeny, right in the midst of that, there is this very messianic declaration that Jesus Christ is going to come from the tribe of Judah. And the language that Jacob uses is that he's going to be a lion. If you would, Tom. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares arouse him? Who dares arouse him? Now, in the Middle East all those years ago, one of the worst things that could happen to you if you were out traveling was to come face to face with a lion. We still refer to the lion as the king of beasts. 
because a lion has that amount of power and authority. And if you go up against one, you're going to lose. And so Jacob says that law-giving and the scepter are not going to depart from Judah until Shiloh comes, whose right it is to rule, and that he's going to rule the nations. But in the midst of that declaration, he refers to this one to come, this Messiah to come, as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Then you move from Genesis at the very beginning of the Bible to the book of Revelation at the very end of the Bible, and here John hears a heavenly elder tell him, Behold the lion from the tribe of Judah. Now we know who that is. That's a direct reference to Christ who has been predicted ever since Genesis 39. And so there is this great unity to the word of God. There's this great unity to the Bible. And now we know that the one who is going to be declared as worthy is in fact Christ. And it's no surprise in heaven that it is Christ who is the worthy one because ever since the beginning of the creation of mankind and the creation of the 12 tribes of Israel, ever since then, the declaration has been that the Messiah is the lion of the tribe of Judah. One of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, and then he calls him the root of David. That is just so very interesting because to us Gentiles, that doesn't have any immediate emotional impact because we didn't grow up with the history of our great king, David. David was the greatest king that Jerusalem ever had. The collective 12 tribes of Israel were ruled by the man after God's own heart. My goodness, to have your lead politician, your king, the leader of your nation, be a man after God's own heart. And God blessed him abundantly. And through him, God made a promise. We know it is the Davidic covenant. God said, I'm going to make you a house, a dynasty. And through you is going to come the king who's going to sit on your throne and rule over all nations. This phrase, the root of David, is a direct reference to the Davidic covenant. Let's all turn to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 11. And it would be easy to just read a little piece of this, but boy, every time I get into Isaiah 11, I have to keep reading because there's just no good stopping place. At the beginning of Isaiah 11, we're going to hear yet again about the seven spirits of God. In a moment, we're going to see the seven spirits of God again in heaven in Revelation. The seven eyes that are the seven spirits of God that go about over the whole earth. Well, here they are described in Isaiah, so... Again, a direct reference to Old Testament prophecy. So 11.1. Then a shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. That's very messianic. Who is Jesse? David's father. David's father. So again, we're talking about the heritage, the offspring, the progeny of David. A shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit, 
and the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge, and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear, the reverence of Yahweh. He will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked, and righteousness will be the belt around his loins, and faithfulness the belt around his waist. Okay, so all of that is tribulation language. As we continue learning through the book of Revelation, as we continue learning about the tribulation of God, the judgments that God is going to pour out on the earth, the things that are defined as the time of Jacob's trouble, and then they branch out into the whole world as the day of the Lord occurs, these judgments of God are predicted right here in the book of Isaiah. But then what comes after the tribulation and the day of the Lord? Well, the time of peace. We know it as the millennium. And that's immediately now what Isaiah jumps to. So the order that Isaiah lays out goes, Jesus, tribulation, millennium. And then you get to the book of Revelation, and it's laid out as Jesus, tribulation, millennium very consistent eschatology in the Bible. Because after saying that with his breath, the breath of his lips, he's going to slay the wicked, and that he's going to be dressed in righteousness and faithfulness, the result of that is peace. Verse 6, and the wolf will lie down with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little boy will lead them, and the cow and the bear will graze, and the young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox. One of the great evidences against amillennialism, the notion that we are in the millennium right now, is that if you put a baby lamb and a lion in a cage together, one will eat the other. And it won't be the baby lamb that's doing the snacking. And yet there is a time coming, predicted by Isaiah, where there's going to be such peace that even natural animal enemies are going to live at peace with each other. And verse 8, the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand into a viper's den. He's not afraid of being bitten or being poisoned. Verse 9, and they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Is the knowledge of the Lord covering the earth right now the way that the seas cover the earth? Is that happening right now, or can you still find skeptics on planet earth? If you can still find skeptics and cynics, if you can still find atheists, well, then this hasn't happened yet. Why has it not happened yet? Because first comes tribulation, first comes judgment, 
then Christ returning in his righteousness, establishing his kingdom, because he is, after all, the root of Jesse. He is, after all, the descendant of David who is going to sit on David's throne. And once he has established his kingdom, this time of great peace is going to break out where nothing is going to hurt nor harm in all his holy mountain. And the earth itself is going to be full of the knowledge of Yahweh, the same way that the waters cover the seas. And then it will come about in that day that nations will resort to the root of Jesse. Everyone's going to come to Christ, the root of Jesse. And he will stand as a signal for the people, and his resting place will be glorious. By the way, if the nations are all resorting to him, where is that happening? Well, it's on earth. This is not a heavenly prophecy. This is a prophecy of the coming judgment on earth, coming peace on earth, because God says nothing's going to hurt or harm in all my holy mountain. That's Jerusalem. And then the entire world is going to have the knowledge of God, and the nations are going to flow to Christ, who is sitting on David's throne in Jerusalem. And verse 11 says, And then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover a second time with his own hand the remnant of his people who will remain from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and the islands of the sea. What does that mean a second time he's going to gather his people? When was the first time? The first time was when he gathered them out of Egypt and brought them to their promised land. That's a historic fact. That already occurred. We know that it occurred, and we know that whole story. And yet here is Isaiah saying, despite the scattered state of Israel, despite the fact that God has scattered them with his own hand, Here's a promise, yet again, that you're going to keep seeing repeated and repeated in the book of Revelation, that God is going to restore those people, gather them again a second time. Now, if you want to know if that's going to come true, i got a quick question for you. Did he gather them from Egypt? Yes. Yeah, we know that that's a fact. And so based on the historic reality, the inarguable reality that he gathered his people in Egypt and brought them to the promised land, based on that, this also has to happen because God himself says, I'm going to do that same thing a second time. The same way that we believe that Christ is returning a second time, he's coming back a second time to do some second things that God said all along he was going to do. And that includes recovering the second time with his hand the remnant of his people who will remain from Assyria and Egypt and Pathros and Cush and Elam and Shinar and Hamath and from the islands of the sea that stretches all the way out past Spain, past France, past Germany, out into the Tin Islands, into the British Islands. He's going to recover all his people who he scattered and gather them back to Jerusalem, and he will lift up a standard for the nations and will assemble the banished ones of Israel. How plain is that? He's going to assemble 
a second time Israel just like he did the first time. And he will gather, notice this, and he will gather the dispersed of Judah. So northern tribe, southern tribe, just like Ezekiel saw, Ezekiel 39, valley of dry bones, the exact same conclusion. God is going to gather the tribes of Israel and the tribes of Judah. And then the jealousy of Ephraim will depart, that's the northern tribe, and those who harass Judah will be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah. Judah will not harass Ephraim. And they will swoop down on the slopes of the Philistines on the west. And together they will plunder the sons of the east. And they will possess Edom and Moab. And the sons of Ammon will be subject to them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt. And he will wave his hand over the river with his scorching wind. He will strike it into seven streams. And make men walk over dry shod. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant of his people who are left, just as there was in Israel, in the day that they came up out of the land of Egypt. So now God has even defined the first time that he gathered them. Okay, why did I go through all of that? Because the book of Revelation uses the language of this chapter to identify Christ, which means that they validated this whole chapter. Indeed, I would argue they validated the entirety of the book of Isaiah. But if nothing else, you have to realize that if Revelation is willing to declare Christ as being the descendant of David, that root of Jesse, along with that declaration, is he's the one who's going to do all the things that the Old Testament said he's coming back to do. So back to Revelation. Verse 5. One of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, that reaches back to Genesis 39, and the root of David, that reaches back to Isaiah, has overcome so as to open the book And it's seven seals. When we get to chapter 6, which we will begin next week, these seals are removed one by one, indicating that the scroll itself may have been externally sealed with seven seals, or it may be one seal that unwraps one part of the scroll, then another seal that unwraps another part of the scroll, Either way, as we read through the seven seals, we're going to see that the judgment, the wrath of God, is poured out with each successive seal. So this is a scroll full of woe and judgment and wrath of God, and it's sealed up, which is why it hasn't happened yet. Every once in a while, I look at the world and I think, let's go, God. (laughs) What do you putting up with this for. And the reason that the wrath of God, that final tribulational time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again, the reason it hasn't happened yet is because it's sealed up. And God sealed it up seven times. So really, who's worthy to open that first seal and start that time of judgment that's been predicted all the way through the Old Testament? One of the elders said, stop weeping. 
Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders, I saw a lamb standing, a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So that verse defines for us the meaning of the seven eyes. You don't have to wonder what's the point of the seven eyes. They define it for us. The seven eyes are the seven spirits of God, which have gone out into the whole of the earth. As we continue through the book of Revelation, you're going to see a lot of talk about horns. And that's going to send us back to the book of Daniel, because Daniel sees visions of a succession of kingdoms in the Middle East that all persecute Israel specifically. And he describes them as horns. In fact, when describing a beast who turns out to be the Medo-Persian Empire, it has two horns, but one horn is higher than the other. Because historically, that's what actually happened among the Medes and the Persians. When Cyrus the Persian became more powerful than Darius the Mede. And so this representation of power, this representation of particular kings is horns. Daniel, in speaking of the final ruler to come, the one that we nickname Antichrist, when describing him, he calls him the little horn, that's the King James, or the NASB says the notable horn. So horns represent power, in prophetic biblical literature and in the book of Revelation. And this lamb, who is standing as if he had been slain, has seven horns, pretty much all the power. He has seven horns and he has seven eyes, which are the spirits of God who are sent out into all the earth. And he came, which means he approached God. If Shane decided to just up and approach God, wouldn't that seem a tad presumptuous? <laughs> wouldn't it seem like God would say, uh, excuse me, <laughs> what do you think you're doing? And yet Christ approaches his father on the throne in the midst of the angels crying about God's holiness. In the midst of the four living creatures and the 24 elders crying about his worthiness and how he has created all things, how he is majestic in his splendor, in this light that no man approaches. And Jesus walks up to him, and God allows it. That's the closeness, the unity of the relationship between the Father and the Son. I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures 
And the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one having a harp, and golden bowls full of incense, which he then defines for us, which are the prayers of the saints. So let's talk about that for just a moment. Because that picture of bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, is again a direct allusion to an Old Testament concept. If you would, Tom, I'm going to put you to work one more time. Turn to Psalm 141. You're going to look at verse 2. In Leviticus 10, and we don't need to turn there for sake of time, that's the story of Nadab and Abihu. Do you know the story of Nadab and Abihu? They were sons of Aaron the priest. And they decided to mess with the mixture that God declared in his law. There was a particular incense and mixture of incense that the priests were responsible to have burning all the time within the holiest place. And when you first read it and you see it in the law, it seems like a fairly arbitrary thing. Why incense? In, why this particular incense? And then just to show that God was so specific about his worship and so specific about his incense, Nadab and Abihu decided that they could improve on it. Maybe they liked the smell of their incense a little bit more. And so they brought what the King James calls strange fire to God. Rather than bringing the incense that God prescribed, and God prescribed it specifically because it meant a specific thing, it foreshadowed a specific thing, they brought strange incense before him, and God dropped them dead in their tracks. Okay, so why is God so very, very particular about his incense? Well, it's not until we get to the Psalms that we begin to understand that that incense prefigures something very specific and actually something very dear to us. Tom, if you would, he's going to read Psalm 141, verse 2. David, praying to God, says, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Let my prayers be like incense before you. Now, this is David who would know that God has this very specific incense that is burning before him all the time. And David says the same way that that sweet savor rises up into the nostrils of God, the same way that God has a particular smell that he's looking for all the time, David draws the equation between his own prayer and the incense of God and says, let my prayer be like that incense that's ever rising up before you. And then we get to Revelation, and it kind of closes the loop on that and tells us that the 24 elders, each one has a harp, and not one of those big orchestral harps, but like a lyre, a hand harp. Each one has a musical instrument, and they're carrying golden bowls full of incense, which are now defined for us as the prayers of the saints. So the prayers of the saints of God 
as we pray toward God, we know that Paul has told us that we don't even know how we should pray. We don't know what words we should say to that ineffable God. We don't know how we should pray. And so God made a provision for that too. When we pray, the Holy Spirit of God inhabits those prayers, sort of cleans them up, makes them presentable before God, and then brings them like a sacrifice of incense to God. And here are the 24 elders holding golden bowls full of the incense of God, which are defined as the prayers of the saints. Now, if that doesn't inspire you to pray more, I don't know what will. Amen. To know that your prayer, however halting, however faulty it might be. And sometimes it's hard to pray. When you're in pain, when you're really sick, when you're just struggling to hold on, it can be tough to concentrate on praying. And yet, the simplest prayer said to God then reaches the hands of the Holy Spirit who fixes it, improves it, cleans it up, makes it presentable to God, and then brings it like a holy, righteous incense to bring sweet savor into the nostrils of God as his people reach to him, pray to him. It's a beautiful image. It's a beautiful picture. But again, it's a picture that is prefigured in the Old Testament. You wouldn't understand all the background of these bowls of the prayers of the saints if you didn't also have that Old Testament background and history to rely on. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, having each one a lyre or a harp, and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they, the 24 elders, after they have fallen down in front of the lamb, they sang a new song saying, worthy are you. Axios, exact same word. The exact same created beings, the exact same 24 elders, the exact same living creatures who have been declaring the worthiness of God over and over. And every one of us would agree with them and say, yes, he's the creator of all things. Everything exists and is sustained because of him. Therefore, yes, he's worthy. You are nothing but worthy. Now here are those same elders, those same creatures, those same angels in heaven crying out about the worthiness of the Lamb. So in heavenly estimation, how worthy is Christ? The same way that I told you that praise, worship, just emanates automatically out of people when they're in the presence of God. He is so worthy that that praise just automatically occurs. That same worthiness is the worthiness of Christ. And so... They sing a new song saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain, and you did purchase for God with your own blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The same way that God was declared to be worthy because he made everything, Christ is declared to be equally worthy because he purchased everything with his own blood. 
He sacrificed himself in order to bring God's people to God, and therefore everyone in heaven agrees, you're worthy. You're worthy on the same level that God is worthy. Whenever we tell the gospel, whenever we preach Christ to anybody, that's the essence of what we tell them, that he is the one who was alive, who died, who bore the sins of many, who raised again, sailed off in the blue, sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and said, tetelestai, said, it is finished, said, I've done the work I came here to do, and that work was purchasing these people for God, and therefore everyone in heaven says, you're worthy, you're worthy, you're worthy. Worthy art thou to take the book, oh, even more interesting, because you're the one who paid the price of your blood to purchase eternally particular people to God, because you accomplished that work, you are the only one who is worthy to dole out the judgment of God. You're the one who was worthy to save people. You're the one that is worthy to judge people. Both aspects, the denizens of heaven all cry, you're worthy. So we, in defining our own Christology, have to understand that he is not only the Savior, but that he is the word of God, the instrument through which, the speaking agency through which God created everything, but he is also the agency through which God is going to dole out his wrath. The wrath of God and the judgment of God is going to occur because the worthy one is going to open the seals that bring the wrath of God, and he is worthy to do that because he's the same one that saved people. Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for thou wast slain and did purchase for God with thine own blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and thou hast made them, people of every tongue and tribe and nation, to be a kingdom. In other words, you're all one people group now because you all have one king. To have a kingdom, the requirement for a kingdom is, number one, you have a king. Number two, you have somebody that that king rules over. If you have a king and you have a people that that king rules over, you by definition have a kingdom. And so here in heaven is the declaration that not just Jews, not just Israelites, but people from every tongue, tribe, people, nation, are going to be gathered together and made into one people under their king. Their king, of course, is God. The kingdom is that eternal state, including the new Jerusalem, and you have made all these diverse people who have different languages and different tongues, different people groups, you've made them all one kingdom of people through your blood through the unity of salvation through Christ. Men of every tribe, tongue, and people and nation, and you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. What do priests do? Why is there an office of priest? Why is a priest separate from the rest of the people? What do priests do? Well, they're the ones who are actually given the ability to sacrifice to God. 
the people, the common people in Israel, had to bring their sacrifices to a priest. And then a priest would do the ritual in order to make the sacrifice to God. And so in the kingdom that belongs to God, everybody is going to be able to bring their own sacrifice. Everyone is going to be worthy to stand before God and worship him. And they will reign upon the earth. Is that too obvious? This is not just a heavenly destiny. This is an earthly destiny where Christ is going to set up his kingdom, going to rule from David's throne, and then the nations, the Gentiles, are going to flow to Jerusalem, as we just saw Wednesday night in the book of Isaiah, and all the people who are saved by God will be one united kingdom and rule upon the earth. Now, I know I'm running short of time, so I'll, I'll just read to the end of this chapter without overmuch comment. <laughs> I like that you believed me. Um, I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels. Okay, many is an understatement. Let me give you some idea how many angels we're talking about here. I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. The number of them, the Greek word is myrios. It's entered our language as myriad. Whenever you use the word myriad, you're saying, I can't count that. It's just too many. It's a myriad. But not only that, it's a myriad of myriads. It's, it's too many people of too many people. It's I can't count times I can't count. It's just so many angels around the head of God. But on top of that, he then says, and Kiliarchos of Kiliarchos. The Greek word Kiliarchos is a word that was used for a captain or a general, a military man who was in charge of a thousand men. As we go through the book of Revelation, we're going to bump later into this Kiliad. The word Kiliad means a thousand. Kiliarchos means leader of a thousand. So there are thousands of leaders of thousands. John is just trying to express the number that he is seeing around the throne of God. Now, once you get some idea, some concept of how massive this group is, where John just says it's I can't count times I can't count times thousands of leaders of thousands, and oh yeah, more of those thousands of leaders of thousands, <laughs> and they're all saying with a loud voice, worthy, Axios is the lamb that was slain. He is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and everything in the seas, I heard say, to him who sits on the throne, that's God, and to the Lamb, 
be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. So now it's not just Yahweh on his throne. It is Yahweh, the one on the throne, and the Lamb who are receiving glory and laud and honor and declarations of worthiness. Every created thing in the heavens, on the earth, under the earth, on the sea, in the sea, everything, every created being is going to declare to him that sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept on saying, Amen. It's an old Hebrew word, I mean. When you read about Abraham believed God, it's the word I mean. He amened God. And what it means is, verily it shall be so. It's complete and utter agreement with God. And the created four living creatures before the throne of God are constantly saying, Amen, 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 while everyone else is declaring glory and worship to the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, and blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures are saying, Amen, 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 Amen. This is all true. That ought to be instructive to us. That we need to recognize. Here, I'll put it this way. Look, I was a kid once. I know that's hard to believe. Um, Once upon a time, while I was a young Lutheran boy, I knew that we went to church every Sunday and that while we were there, we talked in a very vague sense about God. And I knew that the Bible had something to do with God. But then I knew we were, we were Christian. I didn't really know what that meant. But I knew that worship, if you worship, if you pray, that was pretty much the extent of my worship. But if you pray, you pray to God. And I never really understood where Jesus fit in there. What's the importance of Jesus? If, if God is saving me, if God's the one we worship, if God's the one I'm asking for stuff to, then where does Jesus fit in all that? Well, these chapters, 4 and 5 of Revelation, tell us exactly what the relationship is. And I'm sad that I was raised without being told that. Because the greater you understand that God and Christ are equally praised and glorified as being utterly worthy, and the more that you know that the heavenly denizens and those under the earth and those on the earth and in the sea and on the sea, they are all collectively at some point going to do exactly what God said is going to happen. God said every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's what was described in chapter 4 and chapter 5. So when you go to pray to God, recognize that you could not pray to him were it not for the fact that his son bought you, redeemed you, and gave you the ability to go pray to God, which is why we pray in Jesus' name, in his authority. As you're establishing your understanding of Christ and who he is, recognize that in the heavenly economy, he's equal with God. And all the angels know it. 
the myriads and myriads of angels know it. And they worship him on the same level that they worship God. That really ought to be very instructive to us who wear the name of Christian. Now I can understand why Thomas would say, to Christ, my Lord and my God. Because he is, in fact, both. Any questions about all that? All right, I'm going to get out of the way. I think we should sing, thank you, O my Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your spirit till the work on earth is done. That song is in your chorus book, your blue chorus book. should be number 15. for listening. 
to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.